Stephan. So Acts chapter 6. If you still need to turn there, you can, you can turn there. Acts chapter 6. So there's this guy called Stephan, remember? And, um, and, and if you've repented and you've believed in the, in the person of Jesus and who he is and, and who he stands for, then you have the Holy Spirit in you. Right? The power of the Holy Spirit is in you. Uh, you have wisdom and you have boldness to, uh, to go forth. And I'm asking you if you believe that. Do you really believe that? Okay. Yeah, amen? Amen. Right, dude? And today we're going to read about a man who wasn't really anyone special. Right? Uh, we, don't get to, we don't really hear too much about him uh, later on. And he didn't have a PhD. Right? He, he wasn't a millionaire. Um, he, wasn't, he wasn't rich or anything. But he had the Holy Spirit. And, in, and we see in the, in the passage, in, in verse 8, it says that, uh, Now Stephan, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Alright, so this, this guy is, is followed Jesus with all that he had. And, and that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. He's kind of like my hero. Uh, and, and I, I want to be like him. It might, it might sound crazy because this guy actually ended up dying for what he believed, as we'll find out later on in the story. Alright, this guy, he... He dared to stand up for his faith. He dared to, to share the truth of God. And God used him in a mighty way. Right, it's not the easiest choice. It's not the painless choice. But, you know, or else, you know, Christians, they would have never needed to pray for boldness. But I do believe that when we, start, when we stop living for ourselves, when we start living for Jesus, that's when we truly experience life as God intended. Where we, true, we truly experience joy. Where we truly experience hope. So how many of us have the same desire, right, to be like Stephen? Or, well, maybe you want to learn about his story first, right, before you make the decision. So, so let's read, okay? So in verse 9, it continues, Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia uh, and, and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit from whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen uh, speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. They saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So when we live for Jesus, we're going to face opposition. In Sunday school a few weeks ago, we sat in a circle and we just kind of shared, like, what, what is it like to be a Christian uh, in your school or in your workplace? And some of the students share stuff like they, they might be seen as weird for their beliefs. Maybe they might be outcasted, like people won't want to make friends with them. Um, they, 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 uh, they might be ridiculed for what they believe, like you know, uh, Christians, they, they believe in like, uh, you know, false stuff or hoaxes. Right? They're kind of dumb. And similarly, Stephen, he was slandered, okay? Slandered. But the people in power... Right, these teachers of the law, the people in the Sanhedrin, they couldn't overcome him with the reasoning. 
They tried to reason with him. They tried to say why. You know, Stephen, you're wrong, man. You shouldn't be saying these things. But they couldn't overpower him. They couldn't overcome him because the wisdom of the Holy Spirit was in him. Right? God gave him wisdom. So I'm wondering here, has anyone tried to uh, defend their faith before? Like maybe at a family dinner, like and someone's like, oh, I know you're a Christian. Or maybe at school, uh, you guys are learning about some kind of history, like the Bible's included in, in history maybe, um, of like famous people or something like that. I don't know, right? You might, you might, you might encounter that. And, and, and because you, you might, might want to make a comment and someone might say like, oh, you must be a Christian. Like don't Christians believe, you know, that, that good people, uh, you know, would... Uh, go to hell because they need Jesus, even though they're good people or something. You know, like, have you tried defending it? Like, was it scary? Was it, was it frightening? Was it maybe unproductive? Like, your conversation got nowhere? Right? It just ended as quickly as it started? Maybe anyone traumatized by it? Like, they don't want to try again? But I want, I want you to see here that in this story, Stefan, he doesn't avoid reasoning. In fact, that he uses it. And we're, as we go through all these 71 verses... We're going to see how Stephen provides an argument, okay, using reasoning, using his wisdom to show these people that, hey, this is what I believe, and I have good reason to believe it. And in the past few weeks in family time with the youth, we've been going through apologetics and learning about what faith is. So Richard Dawkins wrote this, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Right, faith is belief in spite of, right, even, be, even because of, the lack of evidence. So Richard, Richard Dawkins said this. So basically, faith is a cop-out. It, it evades the use of our minds. And basically, it says, don't think, don't evaluate, don't test it. Just believe, because that's what faith is. And he also says this. Faith, being belief, isn't based on evidence. It's the principal vice of any religion. Alright, so Dawkins, he sees religion as flawed because it lacks intelligence. It's the vice. So a vice is basically something that's flawed. It's a weakness. It's like, it's like religions are based on fairy tales and, you know, just like unicorns or leprechauns. These type of things. On the other hand, consider what John Lennox, uh, who is a professor of mathematics at Oxford University, um, so he's, really, he's a really uh, famous speaker. He speaks on science and philosophy of religion. He says this, Faith is the response to evidence, not a rejoicing in the absence of evidence. So faith is a response to evidence, not a rejoicing in the absence of evidence. So this definition is really different than the one we heard before. It's, in fact, it's a completely opposite understanding. Uh, this understanding of faith by John it's so far removed from our culture that when I went online, I, I shared with the youth last night, when, we go, when you go online and you go to like Mer- uh, Merriam-Webster or like uh, dictionary.com or all the other dictionary web- websites, um, this, this definition of faith, uh, that faith is the response to evidence, right, not the lack of it, it's, it's actually not even there sometimes. And if it is there, it's, it's usually under like one line. Uh, it says like, you know, faith is based on, uh, like, evidence. And then in parentheses, it says Protestants. You know, it's just, like, one line there, you know. So when you say Protestants, that, that's basically saying it's only these group of people that believe this way. You know? So this type of faith that, that we see from the Bible, the way the Bible and God understands it and wants us to know, is so far removed from our culture. So we think about the schools and all of that. 
uh, they, 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 they say science, you know, is truth. And not saying that science can't have some truth, but, but religion, God, is not truth. Right? It's not truth. So I want you guys to think about the people in your spheres of influence like, that have a worldview that is not biblical. Right? Spheres of influence, so your friends or family, um, people that you associate with, they all hold a worldview, which is basically a way of them understanding this world, how they make sense of this world, what the purpose of life is, and all those things. And, and, and they truly believe that that's the truth, or else they wouldn't live that way, or else they live another way. Or maybe, they, they, maybe they're searching, they haven't found that. Maybe they, they feel like their way of living right now is lacking in some way. But this, this is a, those people are great opportunities to share the truth with. So the Bible says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So that's like a mouthful. But basically, when we battle as Christians, we're not, we're not throwing hands physically, okay? But we're, we're basically throwing hands like up here with people. We're engaging people's minds. We're, 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 we're battling with them kind of up here in a sense. Not that we want to hurt them or anything, but we're challenging the way that people think. We want them to see things God's way, right? The way that things are supposed to be. And that's what Stefan's trying to do. So these people, they're arguing against Stefan, but they were losing, so they secretly persuaded some people to be false witnesses, to slander him. And they, slandered, and they said this. They said that Stefan is speaking against Moses and God. Stephen is speaking against Moses and God. It says what in verse 11? He speaks blasphemy, words of blasphemy. So this is the equivalent of an American citizen going up to the White House and then torching the American flag. This is really serious. And then this is, the, this is and then the American citizen, he goes to the, the cemetery and he finds the, the grave of, of uh, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or something like that and then he spits on their grave. And then you know what? And that's not enough. So, so Stefan, according to these, these people who are accusing him, he's basically going up to Capitol Hill and then he's, and he's taking a piss on the Bill of Rights. He's taking a piss on the Constitution. That's how serious they see what he's doing. That he's totally disrespecting God and the law. And I imagine that if, 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 if those who are Americans or you know, those who are, you know, who, uh, if, if we saw those things happen, if we saw someone doing that, we would be kind of upset, right? Wouldn't we? We'd be like, that's wrong. That's so disrespectful to the founding fathers. That's so disrespectful to the law that, that upholds justice or that protects people or the amendments, right? the Bill of Rights, the, the Constitution. Like, how could you do something like that? So these people are really upset. And in fact, it just so happens that they're accusing Stefan of disgracing the two, or two of the most sacred, most respected most highly regarded things in Jewish culture, in Judaism, in this Jewish religion, Moses and God. 
So in verse 13, we see that it says that they produce false witnesses and testify, right? This fellow never stops speaking against his holy place and against the law. So when Moses is mentioned in the Bible, he's often paired with the law. Well, Moses, you know, uh, he brought down the Ten Commandments. Um, all the other 630 commandments were given to him by God. And this law is perfect. It must be obeyed. It's the words of God. God gave it to us himself. And to, and, and to fathom that, that, that Stephen, this, this guy, would speak against the law, it's, it's unfathomable almost. Right? To speak against it is to basically dig your own grave and then to hop in it. And likewise, the holy place, or right, this temple, is also extremely important. Or when talked about in the Old Testament, uh, it's understood by the Jewish people as this, the place where God dwells. The holy place. This is the place where God dwells. A God is with us because this holy place, it signifies that. Or to speak against this holy place is basically saying that you are against God. And you're saying that God is not here. And then they paraphrase Stephen's own words as they believe. They said this, that, um, it says this, that this Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Verse 14. So this Jesus, so Stephen is talking about Jesus, and then they, and they catch this, and they say that Stephen said that Jesus will destroy this place, the holy place, and change the customs of Moses. This is, this is, this is really like, you know, this is like almost, this is like heretical to them. So Stephen, he can't prove his innocence, or if he can't explain why, then he's really in big trouble. And we'll find out that even when, if he, do, when he does explain why, he's still in a lot of trouble. And then chapter 6 ends with Stephen having the face of an angel. So I don't know what that looks like. Okay, You, you might think that your children have the face of an angel. or your, I don't know. But, uh, but okay, I don't, my parents never said that to me. But you, know, you might see some really beautiful, wonderful people out there. You're like, wow, they're like angels. Okay. But this guy looked like an angel right now. And, and I think that's really significant because you see that something miraculous, something really amazing is about to happen. God's going to use him for something really, really amazing. And this is kind of a sign. So let, let's continue. So we're going, to, we're going to hear now four sets of stories in chapter 7. Okay, so it's going to be really long, so try and, try and hang in there with me. Four sets of stories that paint a picture of God and his people. Four stories that paint a picture of God and his people. So if you want to learn about God's relationship with you, with us, then, then listen up, right? If, we're, if we want to see God's work with his people over the course of history, then it's going to be here. And Stephen, through these stories, he shows his accusers that they've completely missed God's will. They've missed it. Right? That they were so, so serious about the law and the holy place, but they really missed what God was up to. So let's, let's not miss that, right? Let's not miss that as we dive in. So first story, okay, chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. 
So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him uh, to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance there, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a land uh, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and after they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Well, that's the first story that, that we hear. So in Genesis, if we go back all the Genesis, so this is a really huge like, history lesson in a sense. In Genesis, there was Noah right, and the flood. And then after that, there was the Tower of Babel, where God scattered them. He confused their language, and then they, they went everywhere. And then in chapter 12, out of the blue, there's this guy called Abram, later known as Abraham. So Abram. This is random dude, honestly. Just came out of nowhere. God came down to him and made a promise with him. A covenant, a promise. He said, leave, leave, your, leave your home country, go where I'm going to tell you to go, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you many, many descendants as numerous as the, sky, as the stars in the sky and a sand in on the seashore. And I'm also going to give you a land for you to possess. Not now, but I'm going to give that to you. And this is later known as the, anyone know the land was commonly known as what? Anyone? New Night Mizdi. The what? New, new Night Mizdi. Uh, oh, the, 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 the land flowing with milk and honey? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the promised land, right? AKA the promised land. And then God gave them the mark called the circumcision. So, you know, for, for males, right, uh, a part of their, uh, their genitals, the skin will be kind of cut off. And that would be a physical mark of God's promise to them. If you had that mark, then it showed that you are part of this, this Abraham's family, and, and Abraham's family was God's people. But then God also told him that, yes, I promised you these things, but your descendants, they're going to be slaves in a foreign country for a long time. And they're going to suffer. But I will rescue them and I will bring them out to the land I promised. So from this one story, I want you guys to, to, to see this. It's that God is the one who appeared to Abraham. God is the one who spoke to him. God is the one who sent him. God is the one who, who promised him. God is the one who's going to punish the, the oppressors in the foreign land. And God is the one who's going to deliver them. So long before there was a holy place, Long before uh, uh, there was a holy place, the temple, there was a holy people. Holy people. Whom God pledged himself to. And then the last verses of the story shows that God renewed his covenant, his promise to these people time and time again. Right? To Isaac and to Jacob and then to the twelve patriarchs. And these twelve sons basically became the twelve tribes of Israel. So let's get story now. Second story now. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, so remember Joseph is the guy who his father favorited him, so he had this colorful cloak, and then his brothers, they got, basically they got jealous. So they sold him as a slave into Egypt. 
But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing the great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then, Joseph, then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and his, our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in a tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamar at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Alright, so this is this is kind of the, the this is kind of the uh, the second story right here. So we see that through this story, God again was with his people. Joseph should have died. People who get sold into slavery, their 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 fate is pretty much death. Okay, they get worked to death. Joseph's fate was to die, but God protected him. God was the one who gave him wisdom, the ability to interpret dreams for the Pharaoh. That's how he survived. And God, through Joseph, saved the entire family. So how are you going to have, uh, continue to have descendants if all your family is dead from starvation, right? So God provided a way to save them right? through Joseph. God kept his promise to his chosen people. So God brought so so God saved them, and then Joseph brought all his family to Egypt, gave them the best of the land. They, they, they settled in Goshen. It was really, really good land, and they multiplied, they were fruitful, and they were safe. For just a period of time, though. Verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. They would actually have them toss them into the Nile River to drown, drown Hebrew babies. It was, it's really, really sad. Right? At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them was being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would recognize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. So these descendants, they became enslaved. So this is the period of time that God was talking to Abraham about. That your people are going to be enslaved in a foreign country for a long time, 400 years. So I want you to think about, as we continue to read these stories, what is God's relation to these people? What is God's relationship to these people? Was God going to keep his promise to these people? 
It's been 400 years. 400 years of slavery. Is he going to keep his promise to his people? They all die out. There's, there's no promised land. There's no people to go to the promised land. So third, third story now. Right, in, in Israel's darkest hour, in Israel's history, when we read in the Bible, whenever they talk about Egypt, it's seen as this really, really terrible, horrific time. Is, uh, Egypt was basically Israel's darkest hour. And in that time, a baby was born to a Hebrew family named Moses. I'm sure that we're all really familiar with this, with this story. Moses was supposed to die, just like any other Hebrew baby. He was supposed to die. But God saved him, God brought him up, and he raised him as this deliverer. God kept him alive for a purpose, that purpose being salvation for his people. But Moses, you know, he, he's kind of hot-headed, so he tried to do things his own way before God's time. And he went out on his own, and he killed the Egyptian. He's like, man, if I kill this Egyptian, my people are going to see me as a hero, and they're going to, like, rally up behind me, and we're going to, like, fight against the Egyptians, and then we're going to, like, we're going to escape, and we're going to go to the promised land. So that's what, that's what he had in mind. But that's not what God had in mind. So... Moses, he was afraid, he started freaking out, like, oh my gosh, like, my people, they, they hate me, and, and, and now the Egyptians hate me, and now my own people hate me, so he, he escapes, he runs off into the desert of Egypt, into the area of Midian. And he stayed there for 40 years in this desert, he raised a family, and one day as he was tending his sheep, there was a burning bush. A burning bush. And a voice spoke out from that burning bush, and it was God. So long before there was a holy place, there was holy ground, holy, holy place outside of Jerusalem. So these people who are accusing Stephen, they're saying, you're speaking out against a holy place. You're saying that this holy place isn't going to be a holy place anymore? Like, that's, 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 that's not right. And Stephen is saying to them, look, long before you guys had this temple, long before that, there was holy ground outside of Israel. In Egypt. Because it says here, it says what? When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his... Oh, sorry, not, not that part. Verse uh, 30, my bad. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come and I will send you back to Egypt. This is the the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who who made you ruler over and who made you ruler and judge? When he sent... Uh, when he was sent to their ruler and delivered by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush, he led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. So God used him to deliver them, right, after this experience. And then what, does it happen? what happens in verse 37? It says that, and this is the Moses who has told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with your fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. So this is kind of like the third part of Moses' story here. 
It, it, so listen up, okay? It says here, But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Because Moses, when he went up to Mount Sinai, he was up there for like a month. So they're thinking, like, this dude is dead. We have no leader now. So Aaron, uh, Moses' brother-in-law, hey, Aaron, you make a, uh, a god for us, uh, and then we'll, we'll say that this god delivered us from Egypt. So they brought sacrifices to it and held celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. And this agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Are forty years in the desert, O house of Israel, you have lifted up the shrine of Molech? Right, this, 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 this religion, they, they sacrifice babies. And at the star of your god Rephan and the idols you made to worship, therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Alright, so while in the desert for 40 years, God instructed Moses and Israelites to build a tabernacle. So this was this tent that, that, would, that God would dwell in. So God is holy, and if people who are sinners come in contact with the holy God, people die. Because God is holy. So God, he said, I want to dwell among you. I want to be with you. But you need to build me, uh, you need to build me a, a place to, to dwell for your own good, for your own safety. This tabernacle. And it was a tent. And in the tent, there was a holy place and there was the holy of holies, right? This was where, where God dwelt. So long before uh, there was a, a, you know, a holy place in, in Israel, God was already with his people, traveling with them right, through the desert. And in verse 44, it says this, our fathers, our forefathers had the tabernacle of the ten- testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed, right? And, and according to the pattern he had seen, having received the temple, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when he took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High, listen up right here, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So after they went to the promised land, you know, we had Saul, right, the first king, and then we had David, and then David was like, hey God, you've been living in a tent this whole time, and we, you know, I have this nice palace where all these people are good. I want to build you a, a, a house. And God's like, what do you mean you want to build me a house? Everything is mine. You think that this house is going to be able to, to be good enough for me? Did not I create everything? Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Where will my resting place be? And then it says in verse 51, it says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resisted the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. This is Jesus. 
Right. And who you have received the law, but was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. So in John chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, it says, Jesus says this, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, they're like, are you crazy? What do you mean you're going to destroy the temple? This is our beautiful temple. It took 40, what, 46 years to build this. And you're going to say that you're going to raise it up in three days? But he, in verse 21 it says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So this is again intertwined now with, with Jesus now. Jesus, he became this new temple. Right, through Jesus, we come to the Father. In John 4, when Jesus, he meets the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, the, the woman asks him, basically says, you know, are, uh, are we going to worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus says to her, to her, no, we're not going to worship, we don't have to worship in Jerusalem when the time comes. Why? Because we worship God in spirit and in truth. This is how God wants us to worship him. Not in, it doesn't have to be in a specific location. You see, these accusers of Stephen, they were so focused on a specific location that they really missed what God was about. Before, people had to go to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God. Right, there were curtains in the tabernacle. There were walls in the, in, the, in the temple. But now, no more. When Jesus came, he, he, he broke those walls down. He divided the, he tore the veil. God became accessible to everyone. You didn't have to go through a priest. Now God was available to everyone. And this is good news. This is the good news that Jesus brings. We learned that God, through the stories, he's not far off. He's not aloof. God didn't, a lot of people, they, they might think that God created the world, and then he just let it go into motion, and this world just gets more and more chaotic, and then, and then it's just more and more bad. And God, just, God doesn't really care. But through these stories, we see that God had his hand in everything. That God, he came to, the, to Abraham and he chose the people for himself. And he's the one that made a promise to them and that he's going to keep it. We see this story that God went through such great lengths to be with his people. God, he, he, he dwelled in a tent just to be with his people. We have a God that loves us this much. I know some of us, you know, we might say, well, I, I experienced love from my parents, like from, 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 from a, you know, a parent or something like that. But this love isn't perfect. Right? This love is not perfect. However, God's love is perfect. Right? He loved us so much that he sent Jesus not only be, to become the temple for us, to be this holy place that, we, that we can, everyone can access now, we also came to fulfill the law. So this is the second thing that Stephen's accusers accused him of. He said that Stephen was uh, uh, going to change the laws. Uh, basically, Stephen was saying that Jesus was going to change the customs of Moses. And I believe that they thought this way because they thought that Stephen was disrespecting the law just to disrespect it. But they had a misunderstanding. This is what I believe that Stephen believed. Is that Stephen believed that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Matthew uh, chapter 5, 17 uh, and 18 says, 
Jesus is saying this now. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. So basically in Greek, there's, there's a dot under, like, under the uh, letter I. And, and, or, and that, that dot is basically, it, it might be missed. So, so people might, like, trans, when they transcribe or when they're copying, they might miss that dot. But God is saying that I'm not even going to miss this small law. If there's one small law that's there that, that God gave, Jesus is going to keep it. Do you know what the purpose of the law was? One of the purposes of the law was? Anyone want to take a guess? What's the purpose of the law? Take a guess. What was the purpose of the law that, that God gave to Moses, to the people? Take a guess. There's several, but I want to see if you guys can get the one I'm thinking about. Recognize the way of seniors. That was very good. So, one of the reasons was to reveal to us that we are sinful. Right? It showed us that we weren't perfect. The law wasn't given so that we could all be perfect people. In fact, no, it showed us that we weren't perfect. That we could never fulfill God's laws perfectly. It revealed that we, no matter how much we try, we're all going to live inadequate lives uh, pleasing to God. And then this is where Jesus he enters the conversation. Because Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is fully God, fully man. And he's the only person who was ever capable of keeping all the laws, even an iota, even a dot from a, from a consonant or, or vowel. And he kept the law perfectly for all his life. And because of that, he is the only person that was capable of taking away the wrath of God from us. Right, in Romans 6, it says, For the wage of the sin is death, right, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Although we earn death, Jesus substituted himself in our place. Like he died for us so that we might live for him. And this is really what baptism symbolizes. So next Sunday, we're going to have baptism at 2 p.m. So please come and support. And I know some people are going to be sharing. Some people here are going to be baptized, which I'm really excited to do. What baptism symbolizes is really death to ourselves and then alive in Christ. Death to ourselves, alive in Christ. That we are not required to obey Jewish laws anymore. It is not necessary because Jesus fulfilled them. Jesus kept all those things so that we don't have to. We no more sacrifices, right? No more offerings of grain and oil and wine. Right? No, no more having to celebrate different festivals like keeping the Passover for all these things. We don't have to do that anymore. Because Jesus did all those things. And now we've been given a new set of teachings. What are the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave? I love God and love your neighbor. It's, just, it's, it's as simple as that, although it's really you know, still hard to keep, but it's as simple as that. So I want us to think, have we taken this gift of salvation for granted? God coming down, right, from his throne coming down to die for us, going through all this trouble to keep his promise with his people, which he didn't, I mean, he didn't, he didn't have to because these, these, these people, they broke it so many, so many times. God could have just, like, you know, oh, you guys, I'm just going to find some other people. So I want us to, to think about, has our love for God grown cold? 
I want us to reflect upon these stories that, that we read today and to really see God's redemptive work in history. Like, why did God sacrifice so much just to be with us? Like, why? God owns everything. God doesn't have to suffer. Why would he go so far as to die for us? In John 3, 16, it's a really famous verse, right? A lot of people know it. It says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, I believe that we're going to sing a song right after this if we have enough time. Well, we might not have enough time. But um, God's love is relentless. To some people, it might sound crazy. It might sound just irresponsible or careless. It might sound confusing. But God did this because he loved us for his glory. And this is the message of God's love and promise that cost Stephen his life. His accusers, later they, they, they dragged him outside the city and then they stoned him. Right, but to this day, 2,000 years later, we're still, we're still saying his name. We're still hearing his story. His story is still being shared. And his actions still continue to make an impact on people. So what kind of legacy do you want to leave? What kind, of, what kind of things do you want people to say about you after you're, after you're, after you're gone? Everyone's going to pass away. Right? That's just the natural course of life. What do you want people to think about you when they tell your story? Is it that, oh, Phil lived for himself. Phil only cared about himself. Phil, Phil used all his resources on, it, on himself. He, he, he didn't care about people. He said he was a Christian, but he never really told anyone about it. Or is that the story that, that we want? So let's, let's, let's ask God to give us boldness and wisdom to go out and share. Um, it's really encouraging. I was talking to you know, a youth yesterday. He was just sharing with me. Yeah, he's been trying to talk to God about his, uh, with his friends. And it's been really interesting to hear his story. You know, uh, you know, all the different types of people that he's been, that he's been meeting, you know, everyone has like, a different response to what he's saying. And sometimes he might have a lot of questions on his own. Maybe he doesn't know how to respond to those questions that, that people ask him. But at least it's a start, right? It's a start. And that's great right there. That's a really great. I'm so proud of I'm so proud of that youth. Really am. So yeah, let's ask God to give us boldness and wisdom. Would you would you um would you stand as as I pray? And then um we're just gonna pass the offering bag around and um and I'm just gonna close this out and then with a with a blessing from God. Oh, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, we are, yeah. sorry, yeah. communion, that's right. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us Jesus Christ that you have planned for us for such a long time. Since the very beginning, Lord, when you chose Abraham, a people for yourself, Lord, you were thinking about us. That you were preparing a way, planning a way to save us, Lord, from our sins. Something that we don't deserve, or we deserve death, but you gave us life. Or we are so blessed because of you. And as we think and ponder and sit and reflect upon these stories of your work, of your love, of your promise to us, as we come to the table, 
uh, where we share and express gratitude uh, to you through taking the cup, through taking the bread, or the cup that, that represents your blood shed for us on the cross, that washes away our sins, that washes our, uh, us white as snow. And as this bread that was broken, your body broken for us. Or we are so grateful. Or we thank you so much. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.